as was said, today we are going to be in Romans 15, starting at verse 22, going through verse 33 to the end of the chapter. Let me read it for you, and then we'll begin to to break it down and make some observations. This is Romans 15, starting at verse 22. I'm reading from the ESV. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem and bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Acacia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in the spiritual blessings, they ought to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this, and deliver to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come, and know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessings of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I might be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, that I might be of service for Jerusalem, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Amen. There's always a moment um, during the Oscars or the Grammys or whatever award show that you particularly enjoy where the actor or the actress or the musician wins the big award. Best Picture, Actor of the Year, Album of the Year, Song of the Year. And during that moment, there's an interesting paradigm. You have this person who's worked their entire life to reach the pinnacle of their field, and they get up there, and they start to thank everyone. I want to thank my mom, my dad, and they just go down this list of people, uh, my high school teacher, the janitor, I want to thank my cousins, and, you know, they they throw God in there somewhere. But at some point, um, it's just this kind of long list of people they want to thank. And then it transitions from, here's everybody I want to thank, to now let me tell you how great I am, and let me tell you all the things I care about. So then it transitions from, you know, I want to thank my mom and my dad, thank God. Um, But when I was a young kid, I I really cared about whales, and we should really save the whales as a country. It just goes off onto this, like, tangent of, you know, save the whales or save the planet. And then what happens if you watch these shows is the band starts to play. So they got to play them off because it's like, all right, you're going too long. You're talking about saving the whales and you've done enough. It's very interesting that at the peak of human achievement, uh, you can throw God in there. But for the most part, people talk about themselves. They've reached the peak of their life's work and it's I'll I'll maybe sprinkle God in there. But really, I want to talk about myself. I want to talk about what I'm passionate about. And it gets to be so bad in most cases that the band has to play music to kind of gently usher them off the stage. You could say that Romans is the theological peak of Paul's writing. He ties so many points together beautifully that unpack and talk about what the gospel is. We get this clear and robust picture of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. But he then gets to his theological peak, and he doesn't do what so many people do who are rich and famous and and actors or actresses or musicians when they kind of hit their peak. He doesn't do what they do when they hit the peak of their life's work. 
There's a, a story about Michael Jordan, who uh, we will not debate is the greatest basketball player of all time. Amen. There's a story about Michael Jordan. When he was young in his career, there was a coach who said, uh, you know, Michael, we're trying to implement this team-friendly system, and you need to pass the ball more because we're going to get everybody else involved. And the coach said to him, Michael, there's no I in team. You know what Michael said back? Anybody know? He said, there's an I in win. And that's what this team needs to do. So Michael understood at a young age that he was more talented than all of his peers. And if this team needs to win, it's going to be on my back. And you could say that his career maybe uh, bore the truth of that. Michael had a mission. Romans 15 Paul talks about his mission, and he kind of sounds a bit like Michael Jordan, especially if you back up to verse 20. He says, this is Paul speaking, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now, if there is no more place for me to work in these regions. But now there is no more place. There is no more place for me to work in these regions. So Paul's mission was to get the gospel out to those that don't know. If you've ever seen a map, there are these interactive and, and interesting maps that kind of show what his life's work was like, going all over what we would consider the Middle East on missionary trips to do exactly what he says in these verses, share the gospel with those whom have not heard. He's going all over what we would consider to be, like I said, the Middle East. And the point we get to here at the end of Romans is that he can't imagine going anywhere or preaching or talking to anybody where Christ was not known. So you could say, in a sense, he's peaked. And now we're getting the end of his theological masterpiece, but he doesn't do like the actresses and the musicians and the athletes when they hit the peak of their life's work. He doesn't give quick shouts out to everybody who he's known and talk about bragging on himself and what he's passionate about. And he doesn't make the mistake that I believe Michael Jordan made. He doesn't lead with I. Paul has a mission to accomplish, but I think especially here, we can see the way he ends Romans is we can learn that what Paul was approaching and the way Paul was thinking about his mission was the opposite of the way Michael Jordan did. I think what we can learn from Paul is that there is no I in mission. Paul's mission, just as we read, Romans 15, preach the gospel where Christ was not known. This is very similar to the mission that we read up front, the mission that Jesus gives us in Matthew 28, 16 through 20. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. We'll read it again. Now the, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority, we'll talk more about, keep that in the back of your mind, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always till the end of the age. So this popular passage, the Great Commission, some of us maybe have heard it before, can be understood really in, in two ways. The first is the go command, right? Go and make disciples. Go therefore and make disciples. Take up your life. Some people understand that simply go means I'm going to take up my life and I'm going to go somewhere to make disciples and I'm going to meet people and I'm going to baptize them and teach them the gospel and, 
and teach them to obey what Jesus command, which is good. But the verb tense here actually implies as you are going, meaning as you are going about your day-to-day life, working your job, taking care of your family, trying to be a disciple yourself, as you are going, make disciples. So the mission that Jesus gives us is really for everyone, those who physically go and in a literal sense leave, but those who are also, as they are going in their day-to-day life, this mission can be applied to everyone, who, whoever, wherever they may fall on that spectrum. Now, at this point in his life, Paul maybe falls more on the end of, I'm going, I'm physically going somewhere, I'm going to literally leave and go to make disciples, because he's going everywhere, as we saw on that map. And what I appreciate about Paul is that we have this theological giant, he plants churches, he sees miracles, he survives threats to his life, he's at his peak, and while he's at his peak, I think he makes a very clear case that there is no I in mission. What we're going to do is just unpack three simple reasons why I believe Paul is making that point, that there is no I in mission. And the first is simple. There's no I in mission because mission is hard. The mission Jesus gave us, the mission that Paul's on, it is difficult. Remember, his mission, take the gospel where it hasn't been. He's uprooting himself, and he's literally going somewhere. He's going to these different places, preaching and seeing people saved and seeing people delivered. Very similar to our context, the mission that Jesus gave us in Matthew 28. And Paul is doing the opposite of what maybe a lot of us are doing. A lot of us are as we are going, as we are on our day-to-day life making disciples. Paul's literally going. And the the place we are to take this gospel is to the nations, to the known world. What's interesting about our time today is that you can go to and experience and see the nations without ever leaving your neighborhood. Just get to know the people around you. You'll find and be around people who have never heard the gospel, much less never been around a Christian. One example that's interesting is the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette ran an article a few weeks ago about a family that came from Afghanistan to the U.S. They came after last summer, some of you remember hearing in the news that the Taliban took over and people had to flee because they were being persecuted. So this particular family uh, had to flee. There were threats to their life. Their safety was at risk. And so they had to come to the U.S. And they were interviewing a man who was talking about getting settled and adjusting to the culture and the language and figuring out life here in the U.S. And he talks about all of the challenges that he's faced since coming here. You know where this man lives? Green tree, right off 376. So over the last year or so, there's been about 800 refugees come to Pittsburgh from Afghanistan because of the Taliban's rule, and they've had to settle and try to make life, uh, make a life here. Now, if you know anything about the country of Afghanistan, there was a, a Lifeway research that was uh, Lifeway research poll that was published last year, and it was a list of the countries that have had the least amount of people that have met a Christian before. You know the country that was number one on that list? Afghanistan. Number one, 2.9%. 2.9% of the population of Afghanistan has ever met a Christian, period, in their life. So they probably haven't heard the gospel because they've never even talked to or met a believer face-to-face. And 800 of those people are now here in Pittsburgh, in Green Tree, in neighborhoods that you probably drive by on a day-to-day basis. So going to the nations, the the hardship of it can be actually literally hard because you have to physically go. If you were to go to Afghanistan, it's about a day and a half of travel, and you'd be there and you would face a lot of hardships trying to preach the gospel. But there's the other side of it, which the nations in in many sense have come to us. 
run a day-to-day life, if you move outside of your social bubble just a little bit, it's very likely that you'll meet people in Green Tree, in Monroeville, in Penn Hills, in Plum, in Highland Park. You'll meet people who have never heard the gospel, never met a Christian before. So we can begin to live this mission just by breaking out of our social bubbles. But like I said, uh, that's not true for everyone. That wasn't true for Paul's day. So he, uh, he was literally going on mission, supported by other believers, picking up his life and preaching the gospel. So people do this today as well, right? You, you get a flight or you get in a car somewhere and you find a place and you set up shop and you hand out tracts, you have a church service, you go in the streets and preach the gospel, going around praying for people, and then you come back to life as normal. That's what mission looks like in many other contexts in our day as well. And that can be fruitful as well. I'm not saying any of these options are wrong per se. We promote at this church all versions of going. We will have people going to Uganda in the fall. We go locally here in Wilkinsburg in the fall or in the summer. So like I said, it kind of applies across the different ways that Matthew 28 might look in your life. But what's interesting is that our idea of mission, I just want to level set, is oftentimes different than what was experienced in the Bible. In verse 22, Paul talks about being hindered from coming to the believers he's writing to. This is where the hardship of mission comes in. I'll just give you a list of the hindrances that Paul experienced in his life if you just read and document what's in Acts. In Acts, Paul is stoned and left for dead outside of a city. He has to cast a demon out of a slave girl. He's thrown in prison. Multiple times he has to flee for his life. He preaches in Jerusalem. That causes a riot, and we'll talk actually a little bit more about that later. He's brought before multiple courts to to plea for his life, to not be thrown in prison or killed. He's shipwrecked on his way to visit a group of churches. He spends years on house arrest, not to mention probably multiple floggings and legal proceedings all over his 30 years of ministry. So if you compare what Paul went through versus what we go through on a day-to-day basis, there might be some differences. If you go around Wilkinsburg sharing the gospel, you, you might meet some other believers, which is great. You might meet some people who are curious. You might have some awkward conversations, but probably nothing like what Paul did, where you're fleeing for your life. Nothing like what he's going through in Acts. But that, that's not to say that doesn't happen today, because if you do go to a country like Afghanistan, you will face more physical, literal threats on your life, where a regime that doesn't want you there will make it very plain to you that they do not want you there. But none of this, whether you're more on the extreme literal side or the day-to-day side of mission, none of this is to anyone's shame. I'm not here to guilt you all and say that we should live on the edge because Paul certainly doesn't, and it's not practical. If you actually read uh, 1 Corinthians 7, from a mission standpoint, Paul says it's easier for him as a a person who doesn't have a family to be able to go out and and be devoted fully to the, the, the Lord's work or to the mission, to the spreading of the kingdom of God. So Paul makes it clear and gives a lot of leeway in his writings for those who are not living like he does. One of our core commitments as a church is to unify peoples. And some of us know the the kind of follow-up phrase to that. We want to unify peoples across what? Colors, cultures, classes, and capacities. Now those first three we talk about a lot. Color, culture, class, because those can be the more... uh, uh, flashpoint, obvious differences that we face as people, and it can be difficult. We've talked a lot about race, talked a lot about economics, talked a lot about politics, because those can be things that are more on the surface and and challenges to unifying people. But we shouldn't get past the last one, capacity. Unify people across different capacities. And what I mean by capacity is 
I think we could say that through a lot of the Bible and through a lot of what we read about his life, Paul is a high-capacity believer, meaning he's been formally trained to go out and do what he's doing. He's had direct revelation from God, if you read about what happened to him when he was converted. He was single. He says it right out in 1 Corinthians 7. And he has a passion. If you read Romans 9, he's like, I I have an unceasing anguish to see people saved. He's a high-capacity person. And what I appreciate about him is that as a high-capacity, highly visible church, you know, giant in in church history and, and writer of the New Testament, he doesn't ever guilt anybody for not living like he does. And in fact, as a high capacity, high, high visibility leader, he realizes that it's not all on him. If you read in, in our verse today, in verse 30, he says it straight out. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, join me in the struggle by praying for me. Not if you really love Jesus, you would be out here with me in the streets, getting, threat, getting your life threatened or running from the religious leaders of the day. There's no guilt trip. He, just, he doesn't say, you know, you all have to quit your job. You all have to do like I do if you really love Jesus. He says, no, you want to join me in the struggle? Pray for me. Some of the believers in Paul's day lived what we would consider to be more normal life. They had a job. They had a family to take care of. They had bills and, and things to do, fields to work in their time. And mission is hard. Accomplishing the mission that Jesus gave us is hard. It's hard for people like Paul, but it's also hard for people who are doing the day-to-day life and are just struggling in the spiritual realm, praying for people who are on the front lines. And because this mission that Jesus gave us is so hard, if you read, it talks about the body of Christ, there being different parts of it. We all have to play a part. The high-capacity parts, and I say high-capacity in quotes because when we get to heaven, we'll find out that there are probably people who are behind the scenes who had magnificent impact that we didn't know anything about. Whoops. We'll also find out that there were people who were maybe on the front lines who were just being used by God and, and maybe weren't as actually faithful in their um, behind-the-door life that they should have been. So there's both. There are people that God uses in seemingly miraculous ways, and he's just using them to accomplish what he needs done. There are people that we don't see, we don't know, that are doing major things for the kingdom of God. And the mission that Jesus gave us is difficult. That's why we need the entire body, the high capacity, the low capacity, those who are visible in front, those who are behind the scenes, We need all of us to help live the mission that Jesus gave us. And there's no shame, there's no guilt for any what any of us are doing at any point. Because I think what we'll realize in life is there are times and seasons where you can do a lot, be more visible, be in more extracurricular quote unquote activities, and there are times in life where you can't. And we all have to live out and do what Jesus is calling us to do in the ways that He's calling us to do it. Some of us are able to go and have more time. We can come out on Friday nights and help with the homeless ministry. And some of us are just trying to stay afloat and praying. And all of that is valuable because the mission is hard. I think a great example of this is if you look at the life of Jesus. This is not a numbers game. Jesus ministered in his life. If you count out the crowds, Jesus ministered to 12 people and inside of that really three. And even in that ministry that Jesus was doing, there were people that supported him. If you read Move ahead here. Read in Luke 8, first three verses. This is talking about Jesus. Soon after he went through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and also were some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So that last verse, they provided for Jesus' ministry out of their means. 
They had the money, the time, the materials, and they poured into his ministry to keep it going. So there is no I in mission, even for Jesus. There's no I in mission because mission is hard. And like I said, it requires participation and, and uh, buy-in from everybody in every season of life. Missions are hard, but mission, the mission Jesus gave us is also practical. Second point. You have your high-capacity Christians like Paul who are on what we consider, what we would consider in this day and age with our eyes, with what we can see on the, front, uh, on the cutting edge of ministry. And we could be tempted to think that this is all preaching and miracles and making sure that, you know, the, the message is heard and getting out on the front. Well, we could forget about what's going on behind the scenes, doing the work, keeping the mission going. You know what's interesting? Every church father you read about, every major church planner, every hero in the faith, they had parents. Augustine wrote a lot of early church history, had a mother who was very faithful and helped him and shaped him to be the person he was. Every person you read about in church history, they had parents. And oftentimes the contribution of those parents is what sets the trajectory for those major people, those major visible people we see in church history. So the practicality of something like parenting, getting kids up, changing diapers, making sure they're on time for school, that can have major impact in the kingdom and major impact in helping accomplish the mission that Jesus gave us. Like I said, there's, there's a lot of kind of practical things that are going on, even in Paul's life. So if you read about what he's doing, he's preaching the gospel, but he also has a desire to take material needs, material blessings from uh, the believers in the broader Roman Empire. This is Macedonia and Acacia, and he's taking those to meet the needs of believers in Jerusalem. And he goes as far as to say, this isn't just something I'm doing. This is their spiritual obligation. And the way he illustrates that principle is saying, those Gentiles who I'm taking up an offering for, who benefit spiritually from the gospel, they should also share their material blessings. Now, how do the Gentiles benefit spiritually? If you go all the way back to Romans 1, Paul says it pretty clearly. I am unashamed of the gospel, for it comes first to the uh, Jew, and then also to the Greek. So throughout Romans, Paul's been making the case that the spiritual blessings of being the people of God, of being a child of God, are not just available to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. That's how Gentiles, which is all of us, we benefit spiritually from the gospel. There's a lot of places, I mean, that's a large theme in the entire letter of Romans, but even if you look at Romans 10, 11 through 13, for scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So that rich religious history of Israel, the, the idea of being the people of God is also available to the Gentiles. The spiritual blessings are available to them. But the point doesn't stop there because Paul then goes on to say the outworking of receiving that spiritual blessing is sharing in your material blessings. I think the book of James talks about this well. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone has faith, in essence, if someone has, claims to have spiritual blessings or a spiritual life, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace. In other words, go enjoy spiritual blessings. Go in peace. Be warm, well-fed, without giving them 
the things needed for a body. What, what good is that? So also, also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So he's saying authentic faith, authentic spirituality, doesn't just say we're going to give you some abstract spiritual blessing, we're going to pray for you. It also says, no, if you have needs, we're going to minister to those and we're going to meet the, meet, try to meet those as well. This is really easy to apply in everyday life, but you know what you need to know? You need to know people, and you need to know what they need. A real clear example of this, um, a friend of ours is kind of living like Paul. He decided to move his entire family to a different country and go preach the gospel where people haven't known it or heard it. It's, it's a heavily um, Muslim context, and his family is there learning language, learning culture, trying to share the gospel with those who would come to know Jesus. And he's been in this country for years now. We get regular updates from him just over email. And this is uh, what, what, what's in those updates. This is what the last one had that they sent us. Could you please pray for my husband? He was in an accident. He's going to be going through a healing process and, also, and is also going to go through surgery. We also want to give a praise report. Our visa was renewed so we can stay in this country. And also, please pray our gym. They run a gym in this country to do ministry and meet people. Our gym was shut down. So please pray that we can reopen during, um, at some point, um, during COVID, because this is just like here in America, they're having shutdowns there as well. So all this comes to us because we support these people financially. We are giving material means to make sure that they can continue their ministry. Because everything I mentioned in that update that they shared with us, all those things cost money. Getting surgery costs money. Uh, getting your visa renewed and going through that whole process costs money. Running and operating a gym costs money. So we can't uh, over-spiritualize missions by just saying, well, we'll pray that everything is going to work out for you. But all this stuff costs money. Gyms cost money. Surgery costs money. Being in a foreign country costs money. There's a very practical aspect of missions, and the money for that has to come from somewhere. We actually just talked about it. Another one example is the people going to Uganda. There's money involved with that. That's why other churches are providing for our material needs and not just saying they will pray for us. So Paul's point is saying that if you really grasp these spiritual blessings, you will share your material blessings. And I think the other churches in Acts 29 have been a great example to us. They've shared their material blessings with us so that we can continue to spread the gospel. I think Jesus makes this very clear when he talks about the greatest commandment. He's challenged to explain what does this greatest commandment mean? And he tells a parable. But he tells a parable of practical love. Some of us know this story as well parable of the Good Samaritan, right? I won't go fully into it just for time's sake, but there's a man who's taken up and beaten by robbers. It says, left for dead. And there are two people that pass the man on the side of the road while he's struggling to stay alive, a priest and a Levite. And then there's one person who sees the man, the word says, has compassion on him and bandages up his wounds, puts him on his donkey, takes him to an inn and makes sure that he's cared for. And Jesus is asked, well, which of these was a neighbor? Which of these showed love? And the, the point of the story is it was the Samaritan. It was the person who you didn't think would necessarily be the one to, to show compassion. The Samaritan was the one who loved his neighbor. And Jesus tells us at the end of that parable, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Now, what's interesting in the parable of the Good Samaritan is that there are two who pass on the other side, the priest and the Levite. These are both uh, religiously significant people in the spiritual life of Israel. And in fact, 
There's even laws in the Old Testament that forbid them from touching dead bodies. So you could spiritualize your way out of like, well, you know, I'm passing by. I don't want to touch a dead body. I'm going to go do my religious service. And Jesus says, the one who was the example, the one who was the neighbor, the one who loved his neighbor as himself was the one who practically met the needs of someone in need. And he tells us to go and do likewise. So if you see a brother, you see a sister in need, we are indebted, each other, indebted to each other to not just be spiritual, but practical. The mission Jesus gave us is a practical mission. We cannot separate the preaching of the gospel and the desire for people to come into spiritual blessing. That is all a good thing. I'm not at all negating that. We need that. But we cannot separate from the fact that there are material needs as well in churches, in the world, that we should also be actively engaged in meeting. And Paul is exemplifying that. He's going around preaching the gospel. He's also, while he's on his way, simultaneously taking up an offering to meet the needs of the church. And in doing so, he says he's going to actually come in what he considers in verse 32, the full, or sorry, verse 29, the fullness of the blessings of Christ. So there is a practical aspect to missions that we should consider in order that we might also walk, just as Paul did, in the fullness of the blessings of Christ. So there's no I in mission because missions are hard. Missions are practical. But because missions are practical, because there's a sort of uh, seemingly uh, day-to-day aspect to it, does not mean that the mission Jesus gave us is predictable. Paul said that he planned to visit Rome on his way to Spain after visiting Jerusalem to drop off donation. And the key word to that is planned. So if you read verse 32 at the end of Romans, so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So that's how he ends it. First chapter 15, excuse me. He's talking about showing up and being refreshed and being joyful in Rome around the people of God. And if you've read Acts, <laughs> you know it doesn't quite go that way. Paul said that he planned to go to Rome while he was on his way to Spain. But first, I'm going to stop by Jerusalem and I'm going to make some donations to this church. So he goes to Jerusalem, and when he gets to Jerusalem, he does what he tends to do, which is stir up controversy. One, because he goes to Jerusalem and he brings, he has Gentiles with him. But two, if you read in Acts, he is preaching the same message that he's preaching in Romans, that those Gentiles can also be included in the family of God. This message that he preaches in the book of Acts causes a riot. There are people there who want to kill him for preaching that. And he spends roughly two years making his case before different leaders why he shouldn't be put to death for what he did. You can read this all, end of Acts 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26. Paul's on trial. He's going before different leaders. He's going before the Sanhedrin, before Felix, before Festus, before Agrippa, having to give his testimony, having to share why he thinks this gospel message actually does include Gentiles, why he's not an enemy of the state. And eventually at the end, his Roman citizenship prevents him from being put in prison for life or possibly put, uh, put to death. But then, as a prisoner of Rome, he is sent back to Rome. He gets shipwrecked. He spends time on an island called Malta. And then he arrives in Rome. And if you get to Acts 28, where he actually gets to Rome, he gets there, but he gets there in chains. And the time from him preaching in Jerusalem to actually arriving in Rome, like he said he would, is roughly three years. So he's got a major detour. He tells the church in Rome, hey, I'm on my way. I'm just going to go to Spain, and I'm going to stop by 
Um, I'm going to swing by Jerusalem, and then I'm going to hit you on the way, right? But then, as we know, he gets arrested in Jerusalem, and he spends roughly three years on trial, different leaders, getting shipwrecked, a large detour to his mission. And then when he does show up in Rome, he shows up as a prisoner in chains. Like I said, this is Acts 28. And when he came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. So he's chained probably to a soldier that's watching him and keeping an eye on him years after saying that he would come to see them. Imagine Chris or Eddie or Pete saying, you know, I'm going I'm to drive down to Ohio and I'm going to stop by ECC on my way. And when I get to ECC, I plan to be refreshed. I'm looking forward to enjoying my time and spending, spending, having a good time with my church family. And we, then we don't hear from him for three years, like three years of just radio silence. No Chris, no Pete, no Eddie. And then three years later, randomly, they just walk through the door. And when they walk through the door, they're in handcuffs with a police officer ushering them around. That's kind of the picture of how Paul arrives on the scene. So he has plans to go to Rome, and he does go to Rome, but maybe not quite how anyone imagined. All that to say, the mission Jesus gave us is unpredictable. But because it's unpredictable, does not mean that it's unfruitful. Even under the house arrest that he's on, Paul goes on to preach the gospel and write some of his most famous works while he's under house arrest, Philemon, Colossians, Philippians, and Ephesians. So an unpredictable mission does not mean an unfruitful mission for Paul or for us. Paul had some unplanned detours, and I'm sure we all did too. We all probably thought this year, you know, I'm going to do these things, I'm going to advance in my career, the church is going to grow, I'm going to do this in my family, I'm going to do this for my education. It doesn't always go that way right? Maybe it was a medical issue. Maybe it was a death in the family. Maybe it was unplanned financial hardship. Maybe it was all of the above. Being a disciple and living on mission is hard, and it's unpredictable. And that's why I think the ending here of, verse, of chapter 15 is so fitting, verses 30 through 33. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in the struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea, and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there, so that I might come to you with joy by God's will, and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. So Paul's saying, I don't know what's next. I'm going to enter into some potentially difficult times around those in Judea, and please pray for me. And in retrospect, we could say that he was right. He needed that prayer because things got rocky when he got to Jerusalem. And ultimately, it was a long time with a lot of obstacles before he actually made it to Rome. And like we said, when he arrived, he arrived in chains. So there is no I in mission because mission is difficult. It's hard. Mission is practical. And mission is also unpredictable. But if you allow me to stretch this just a bit, Michael Jordan said, there's an I in win. And that's what this team needs to do. 
I've been making the case that Paul's point is that there is no I in mission. There is no singular person that keeps this thing going. Paul was not the Michael Jordan of mission, and neither am I, and neither are you. But there is an S-O-N in mission. There is a son, and that is who we need. Listen again to the words of the son, Matthew 28. There's really two words I want to highlight in that. All authority. Jesus said, all authority is his. And that all authority applies to our day-to-day. When being a Christian is hard, when being a disciple feels hard, remember that all authority is his. And just like we see with Paul, Jesus oftentimes, maybe even more than we would like him to, uses pain and uses suffering to make us better disciples. This means at least two things, that Jesus has all authority and oftentimes uses pain and suffering to make us like himself. This means at least two things. One, because Jesus has all authority, we can be miraculously delivered from suffering at any moment. Daniel in the lion's den, more of that in my life, please. Paul, miraculously freed from prison, amen. More of that, please. I'll take all the miraculous deliverance I can get. Jesus has all authority. He loves us. He can do it. So any hardship we face in life, we can, in the snap of a finger, be delivered from it. That's one thing this means. But because Jesus has all authority, it also means that we can endure great suffering with great perseverance and great joy, and that we can bear great fruit in the process. Paul is one example. He's shipwrecked. He ends up on house arrest. He writes while on house arrest, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, other beautiful gospel works. After three years of tumultuous life being on house arrest, I was on a long flight a couple weeks ago and I felt like I couldn't do anything. So him coming after being shipwrecked, having a really tumultuous last three years and then writing these beautiful gospel works while on house arrest, I think is a testimony to the fact that it is true. Jesus has all authority and he can use all things to make us like himself. Listen to some of the things that Paul wrote while he was in this house arrest. Philippians 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be apparent to all. The Lord is near. Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Colossians 1. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among you the Gentile, how great among you the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Remember when you're reading all those, he's not sitting in a beautiful library in a nice 
nice upholstered leather chair with a cold glass of water. He's probably on house arrest. He's probably uh, has a soldier chained to him or is probably in a really difficult situation. So because Jesus has all authority, we can be fruitful. We can be joyful. We can endure great suffering. We can be delivered at any moment, but we can also endure. These are the all things that Romans 8.28 refers to, that verse that we often read out of context. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called, and co- called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those all things are the good things, preaching and teaching and enjoying fellowship with, with other believers and having things go well, but it's also the hard things. It's the surgery, it's the financial hardship, it's the strained relationships, it's the pain, the physical, emotional pain that we go through. All things Jesus uses to make us like, more like himself. Or another one, Philippians 4.13, right? We love, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We have to remember, all things is the good things and it's the bad things. It's the hard things. It's the difficult things. Because Jesus has all authority. All of those things are used in making us more like him. That's where I want to land us tonight. I want us to remember all authority is his. All authority belongs to Jesus, and he uses all things to make us more like him. Communion is a great way to remember that, that our hope comes from an unlikely place, a body broken and bloodshed. The power to accomplish the mission, the power to live, the power to be declared righteous can come from one of two places, You can be Michael Jordan and say, I, there's an I, and I'm going to live by the power of my abilities. I'm going to live by the righteousness that I can generate myself. I'm going to live by the wisdom that I can live on my own. Or you can live by the S-O-N. You can live by the Son, whose body was broken for us, whose blood was shed for us, who has all authority to make us more like himself. And also, We can take comfort in the fact that as we take communion, he has all authority and he is with us till the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that all authority does belong to you. That in that, you gave up and and set aside the unity you had with the Father so that we could be reconciled to you so that we could trust in the Son whose body was broken and whose blood was shed for our sins. Help us, Lord, when life feels difficult and hard to remember that you are working all things, the hard things and the easy things, so that we could become more like Jesus, that we can endure and do all things through your strength, God. We pray that this time of communion, this time of fellowship, would strengthen us as individuals, that we would... um, have the mystery of your body broken, your bloodshed, the mystery of the gospel powerfully work within us. That we would, by the power of your might, put to death our sin, one more hour, one more week, one more day, that we would live to righteousness, that we would strive to be more like you, strive to be more like Jesus, strive to live the mission he gave us and strive to make disciples by his power. Help us, Lord, to remember your body broken, your bloodshed, Help us in the midst of what is going to be for many of us a week that we don't know what has to come. 
to remember the, the power of the blood, to remember the sacrifice you made for us, to trust not in ourselves, but to trust in you, to give our minds, our hearts, our emotions, and our will to you, moment by moment, day by day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.